Hello and welcome to Inside Exercise. I'm Emeritus Professor Glenn McConnell. I've just finished chatting with Professor Paul Greenhalf from the University of Nottingham. He's been an expert in exercise metabolism for many, many years, looking at all sorts of things, including creatine metabolism, fat metabolism, carbohydrate metabolism. And recently, he's been looking at the metabolic effects of inactivity. And interestingly, he has a theory that inactivity is not simply the opposite of activity from a metabolic standpoint. So he's been finding with an inactivity model that he uses, which is immobilization. So you either immobilize the arm or looking at bed rest, he finds that you get a reduction in your insulin sensitivity. So your insulin stimulated glucose uptake within 24 hours. So if you think, you know, you've been laid up, uh, you know, if you've injured or you're sick in bed uh, within 24 hours, this inactivity will reduce your insulin sensitivity. This is important because inactivity is a major risk factor for mortality and the mechanisms aren't that clear. So he's finding here by doing well-controlled studies that you get a reduction in insulin sensitivity. And we know that that can be a cause of um, pre-diabetes and diabetes. And also this reduction in insulin sensitivity increases your risk of heart disease and even cancer. It's important work. So stick around. I think you'll really enjoy this one. Hi, Paul. Welcome to Inside Exercise. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Glenn. Thank you for the invite. It's always nice to chat to you. Yeah, I was I was thinking a couple of days ago that I had Javier Gonzalez on here talking about carbohydrate metabolism, and I told him I'd only ever been to London. And then I realized later, it's like, hang on, I stayed at Paul Greenhouse's house in Nottingham like 20 years ago or something, and Oscar Hugo's house as well in uh, Birmingham. So, so anyway, thanks for letting me stay at your house all that time ago. <laughs> It's probably nearer 30 years, but never mind. <laughs> no, you're right. It's 30 years. It was creatine. It was when we were both doing creatine. Well, you were the main creatine guy. Anyway, thanks for that. And he also said that there was more canals or about the same number of canals in, in Nottingham as there is in Venice, which kind of blew me away. Well, there's a lot of canals in Nottingham. I know that. I've never counted them in Venice. But yeah, for sure. Well, that's interesting anyway. All right. Good for so cycling along. Good for cycling. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're going to be talking about physical activity, exercise, etc. But what I often do when I start is I, I sort of wonder, do people, you know, get into exercise research because they were interested in sport and exercise initially? Or were they like a scientist to then, you know, quite a lot of people have sort of come the sport and exercise route. How did you get into all this uh, research? A bit of both, really, Glenn. So, uh, my undergraduate degree was in was a joint honours degree in physiology and uh, human performance. So uh, after I completed that, I, kn I knew I wanted to delve more into into exercise physiology, really. So um, I went to Aberdeen to do my PhD with Ron Morn, and uh, I've been very lucky to to have some you know fantastic mentors, Ron, mm -hmm. um, Roger Harris. Uh, when I was working on thoroughbred racehorse muscle and then Eric Holtman, of course. So I'm really lucky and very lucky to have some great uh, students and collaborators in my 30 years in Nottingham too. So Absolutely. yeah, very lucky. I mean, science is as much luck as and being in the right place at the right time as it is hard work, of course. Exactly. All right. So you've done well, obviously. And those are a couple of those people are actually on my list of potential podcast guests. Um, so we'll see what happens now, because you're going to be talking about uh, inactivity 
the imperceived muscle stressor. Um, how about we just sort of set the scene a little bit? So we're going to be talking about inactivity and getting to some of the, you know, the ways you've looked at that. Why don't we just talk a little bit about, you know, what is physical activity? What is inactivity? What are different ways of looking at that? And then, you know, without getting into too much detail, we'll start sort of moving towards what you've done and why. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of the, so, so if you have high, uh, moderate and low physical activity levels, that's what you generally see in the literature that those, uh, are mainly based on step counts and mainly based upon epidemiology research. So, and epidemiology research into health. So, you know, large scale, uh, longitudinal studies or cross-sectional studies where they they've looked at physical activity levels and related that to to either cardiometabolic health or or mortality rates so there's that sort of research then there's also um, chronic disease states where physical activity levels are very low so you know like COPD uh, where step counts round you know around about 3,000 2000 steps per day so mm. so i guess what i'm saying is uh step count is the usual way it's measured uh general guidelines are you know 10,000 steps per day is a high activity 7 to 1500 to 10,000 is moderate um 5000 to 7000 is low and below 5000 is sedentary um but i must stress i guess that you know the biological mechanisms underpinning this are not yet resolved um but the epidemiological evidence is 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 pretty convincing yep so i guess people have started doing um studies with i mean it gets it gets very very hazy doesn't it this inactivity because as you said you could have i suppose you could have five thousand steps but it, but it might be like all of it might be going upstairs I know it's like, I'm just going for you know, kind of the extreme. Uh, and then you might have someone else that's doing 10,000, but they do it all sort of, you know, before work and then they sit around for 12 hours or whatever. Yeah. So I mean, there's a, there's a whole deb debate around, uh, you know, the impact of sedentary activity as opposed to low step count. The uh, frequency of activity uh, doses, if you like, there's a, there's a whole debate around that, but it's a, it's primarily based upon fairly imprecise measures. You know, not many studies have measured metabolic rate, for example, over 24 hours and tried to match this with different different physical activity levels. So, um, yeah, it, it, you know, the epidemiology is quite interesting. You know, there's there's a lot of nice research where you know, 50,000, 80,000, a million volunteers um, where they've shown that high levels of physical activity can have a major blunting effect upon all-cause mortality, for example. Um, the mechanistic basis of that, we don't know. Um, for me, though, uh, where I'm trying to focus... Uh, my interest is is trying to understand more about inactivity you know people talk about physical inactivity 
and they study it by introducing activity. What I will try endeavoring to do is try, try to understand more about the biological mechanisms that are uh, causing adaptation in muscle during inactivity. And I think if you know that, you've probably, if you can understand the biological basis of the impact of inactivity, you can then design studies um, focused on how, he, how to, to um, alleviate that. And of course, inactivity will affect more than just muscle. So cardiac tissue, even the brain, you know, there's a relationship between physical activity levels and gray, gray matter volume of the brain. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, um, it's really interesting. And, uh, you know, the, the idea that being inactive uh, doesn't really do a great deal compared to physical activity or exercise that does a, a lot of positive things, I think is, is probably incorrect in that it sort of fits with the title that I gave you that, it, you know, inactivity in itself is a physiological stressor that will cause adaptation. And the reason it's imperceptible is we don't feel it. You know, you don't feel the decrease in mitochondrial volume. You don't feel the increased adiposity. You don't feel the loss of muscle mass. Oh, I um, see, I see. I guess you feel it when you go up the stairs. Holy, I've just had oh, you, you feel COVID it when you are challenged, yes. But, I've you just know. had seven weeks of not exercising with uh, after doing like a huge, you know, every day for like months and months. Sure. And then COVID, I, it might be partly the COVID, but gee, going up the stairs now, holy crap. Um, yeah, so I guess I guess what I want to clarify a little bit there. So so you're saying people don't really think, but but isn't sedentary, um, you know, being sedentary, isn't that one of the, considered one of the risk factors for coronary heart disease? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But you don't feel it. I mean, often, yeah, yeah. people often call coronary heart disease the silent killer you don't mm. feel it happening you know when yeah. you exercise you feel the stress because sure. it, it you know it's 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 high uh physiological signals that are occurring or biochemical when when you're inactive those the amplitude of those signals whether it's in muscle or in brain or or wherever are relatively low the issue we have is that they're on for many hours for as long as you're inactive they're 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 switched on and um, yeah. you know what i guess it reminds me in a way of um rodent studies you know because because you're saying often they, they have a rodent sitting in a cage it's a bit of a bit of a pet pet gripe of mine i've brought it up a few times in podcasts they have a, a rodent uh sitting in a cage and then they'll get it out and run it on a treadmill and they say that's that's exercise but really that's that's actually an unphysiological situation in that cage where they don't do any activity at all so it's extreme sedentary yeah and then the stress of the treadmill so what they can do is obviously put running wheel on there but then they, they tend to think of that as training but but thinking about your way of looking at it it's more like the running wheel maybe is the the normally active and then the not having the running wheel is your sedentary is your inactive so you can yeah i mean if you if you look at rodents their typical daily pattern they they can run you know in the region of 10 kilometers a night exactly. obviously they're nocturnal animals so um uh -huh. 
you know that and 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 of course there are major differences between uh the rodent and humans in terms of of fuel metabolism and that the rodents relative metabolic rate is so much higher mm -hmm. so they're far more dependent upon carbohydrate whereas a human you know they'll quite happily chug along uh utilizing lipid at all uh low energy levels so i guess but, what so, i'm getting at there is that's a way you could you know you said it hasn't been looked at in humans but i guess all those studies that have had uh rats or, or mice in a treadmill where they haven't in a um cage where they haven't had a running wheel that could be your in inactive and then the ones at the running wheel is sort of like your normal normally yeah active. possibly yeah 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 but but then yeah. you've got the species well, my argument would be metabolism in the rodent so in different. terms of physical activity is so different to a human exactly you know you 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 fast the human and their muscle glycogen will remain as long as they're resting their muscle mm -hmm. glycogen will remain unchanged relatively unchanged you do the same to a, a rodent and uh you'll get you'll get muscle glycogen depletion even exactly. when they're resting so it's, exactly because their relative metabolic rates so much higher so they're very they're very different so you need yeah. to have these studies in humans so thinking about what has been done i guess again what about these studies that look at say because i know we're heading towards your immobilization studies that looked at um insulin sensitivity so you know glucose uptake in response to you know a meal or or an insulin challenge etc um what have what have people done do you know with these you know studies in humans where they have looked at i don't know sitting time and things like that is that is that of any yeah i mean there's some you know as you'd expect uh scandinavia's led the way uh you know in the 90s uh galbo's group did bed rest studies where they they looked at and you know and the people in that group now are major established figures you know michael Kerr, fleming mm. daler eric richter uh they looked at uh leg glucose uptake during the clamp whole body glucose uptake liver glucose output um so fantastic research there um and then following up after that studies out of copenhagen where they you know reduced step count for 10 to 14 days and and saw similar things you know uh in, induction of insulin resistance whether you use a clamp or feeding studies um and this is sustained as long as physical activity levels are low um and that's in young and old uh, volunteers uh Stu Phillips published a paper with Lee Breen where they took elderly people uh and reduced their step count uh to about 1500 steps per day for two weeks I think and there they saw in you know insulin resistance developed and suppression of muscle protein synthesis so it looks like it these negative metabolic effects uh, are there whether you use bed rest or whether you use decreased step count or whether you use limb immobilization um it, it, it's quite clear what's interested me is you know these studies tended to be pre and post 
um, interventions. So, you know, either pre-bed rest and then 10 days later or two weeks later. So, so we've been interested in the speed of onset of these effects, mm. and that's been uh, quite revealing. I mean, I was quite shocked how quickly, you know, if you if you immobilize an arm uh, from the fingers to the elbow, and you you measure glucose uptake across both arms, the non-immobilized arm and and the and the immobilized arm. You'll see a decline in glucose uptake during oral glucose feeding of of about forty percent within twenty four hours in the immobilized arm. So mm. it's specific. It's specific to the to the limb. Um, so that tells me it resides either you know at the blood flow level of the limb or, or it, within the muscle itself. Um, and yes. then that begs all sorts of interesting questions. You know. So again, I. I Studies in Denmark, uh, out of Jürgen Wojcicki's lab and Eric Richter's, have looked done some really nice uh, clamp studies where that you know they've tried to say well what's driving this decrease in glucose uptake and that, you know their conclusions were it's uh, probably linked to hexokinase, a decrease in hexokinase activity or or uh, glycogen synthase. Um, but I'm beginning to think maybe these responses that they showed after 10 days in bed are actually a consequence of the decrease in glucose uptake because it seems the decrease in glucose uptake is so fast. Um, and, uh, you know, probably resides, something that resides in the muscle, but something that's detecting the loss of tension rather than linked to, you know, the 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 current targets which are linked to insulin signaling. Yeah, so you, you were saying that, um, and I put it in the little quote there in the, the Twitter when I advertised your talk, um, that you're thinking that the that inactivity is not just sort of the opposite of physical activity. Is that, is that what, what are you thinking there? What, what, what's your basis for, for thinking that? Uh, My basis is the, the speed of onset is so fast. So you you know as I've just described you'll get a decline in in uh, insulin stimulated glucose uptake within 24 hours of uh, immobilization. You yes. you'll also see similar response. You know you'll see a halving of muscle protein synthesis very very quickly. So this this is a response to the muscle not contracting. Um, so. Whereas if you undertake exercise, you you will get the opposite response. Um, but I'm not convinced it's as fast as, uh, or certainly not, the, the effect of inactivity is, is not slower than the effect of exercise. So it, inactivity per se must be driving these physiological processes. Um, and things like, you know, if you feed someone, for example, when they're immobilized, you get anabolic resistance to the feeding. So the increase in muscle protein synthesis is blunted when you feed someone. Um, whereas if you feed someone after exercise, 
the anabolic effect is uh, greater. So there's some very strange events. I guess that's, uh, no, I, don't, I guess that's what I don't. Sorry, I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to get it clear. I guess I don't know why it's because to me it sounds like you know that is the opposite. So when you exercise, you get an increase in insulin stimulated glucose uptake very like four hours. So we've I've done work with Eric and Jan Wodicheski as well. You know, so you do the one legged kicking with you know one leg obviously, and then you um, do a clamp or we've been doing a meal lately yeah. and you get increased insulin stimulated glucose uptake four hours later, yeah. um, and then you're getting a reduction twenty four hours later. Yeah. uh and then you know you're saying you know you know what i mean like it is opposite I, yeah, what but, i don't but, get is how it's you, not opposite if you do exercise <laughs> yeah the effect wanes the effect is disappears 24 to 48 hours yeah yeah if, okay as long as you keep someone inactive yes the the muscle protein synthesis remains suppressed yes uh insulin stimulated glucose uptake remains low Yes, and actually, another another good evidence is that they're different. If you, uh, we've got data. We haven't yet published it, but if you if you put someone in a cast, huh. and then you take them out of the cast and measure, uh, so you measure, sorry, you measure glucose uptake, uh, insulin stimulated glucose uptake, while they're in the cast and it's blunted. You then take them out of the cast and exercise them. And then you put them back in the cast. The cast can blunt the stimulatory effect of the exercise. So that's telling you the mechanisms have to be different. Okay. Okay. So can I summarize? What part of what I do in these is just sort of summarize so where we're at. Sure. So yeah, I've been I've been sort of asking, uh, you know, what are the different uh, ways of looking at you know activity and physical activity, etc. And you're essentially saying that that exercise is is maybe um, not just the inverse of a lack of exercise because exercise has a has a transient increase in insulin stimulated glucose uptake definitely twenty four to forty eight hours or so, but um, physical inactivity has a continuous reduction, and and what you'll get to which is interesting is, is you said you find it very rapidly and then it doesn't actually change that much. Um, yeah. as you so why don't you talk about that a bit more because that's, that's pretty interesting well i mean yeah. in the paper we've published most recently what, what we see is after uh four days bed rest we have about a 20 percent reduction in uh whole body glucose disposal during the clamp compared to before bed rest uh, and if we maintain those individuals in bed in energy balance uh for 56 days there's no change in that uh magnitude of suppression of uh insulin stimulated glucose uptake so it's still blunted by 20 percent after 56 days and this is under conditions where you know we 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 tightly controlled energy intake so they're in energy balance so muscle lipids are not increasing we measure that intramyocellular lipid. So this is a lack of contraction that's driving this uh, rapid decline in, in glucose disposal, and it doesn't change. Um, what does change is fuel oxidation. So um, what you see after 56 days is that uh, the insulin-mediated suppression of fat oxidation 
that you would normally see in a clamp is blunted. Um, okay. which you don't see that at four days. So there are metabolic changes occurring in the muscle that, that favor greater lipid oxidation, but that's dissociated from the glucose uptake effect, which again is quite interesting. That is Why interesting. Is that Why is that happening? Yeah, um, so, so the two studies, so you had the study where you did just to bring people up. So you mentioned the casting, so you cast them and then you measured the, um, the glucose uptake across the, the arm, basically. So the arterialized venous, so basically artery versus vein and the blood flow. Yeah, and you yeah. It showed that the immobilized one had a 48% or something reduction after 24 hours, and it didn't really change. It stayed like that for the next three yeah. days, and the immobilized one didn't. And then you found that if you look at, um, was it three days with the with the um, bed rest? Yeah, three or four, I can't remember. And it was down, and then three it didn't change. Yeah. For the fit. So that's really amazing, right? You would have predicted, I guess, yeah. it would continue to go down. And also others have shown, you know, uh, Francis Stevens has shown that if you feed people a high fat diet while their uh, arm is immobilized, it doesn't blunt the glucose uptake any further. So this is an intramuscular adaptation uh, that is insensitive or not sensitive at all to the circulating substrate availability delivered to the muscle i guess i so, guess it could i can't help saying this because we did the same one of the studies we did with eric uh we looked at the capillary muscle blood flow so even though um i guess you don't know because we found that um one negative exercise increased insulin sensitivity partly by increasing insulin signaling and partly sure. by increasing the flow of blood yeah. to the muscle i guess you don't know that yeah yeah, you could. I'm not. We don't. As I said earlier, we don't really know a lot about the biological mechanisms at the moment. For sure, blood flow could play a role, and and measuring microvascular flow is obviously uh, where you should try to be at. All I can say that is, we've got current data where we gave uh, GTN in in a deep vein into the forearm to increase. Sorry, can you just explain uh, the GTN, sorry? So yes, GTN uh, donates, I think it's uh, nitric oxide causing mm -hmm. vasodilatation okay. of blood flow. So mm -hmm. we've, we were able to vasodilate the forearm uh, while it was immobilized and compare it to another arm in which we infused saline. And there's clear evidence of vasodilatation. It didn't touch the impaired glucose uptake um but of course that's a i guess a non-physiological um proof of concept i'm not right. saying that under physiological conditions blood flow is not important of course it could be important and hopefully these these uh you know as mr methods develop to be able to measure blood flow in vivo um at a, at a microvascular level then these things will hopefully emerge and be yeah, clear. yeah so i guess the nitric oxide i, I can't help it again because my nitric oxide is my main area <laughs> so nitric oxide is going to see if the smooth muscle is okay but if you wanted to see endothelial function you'd have to give something like acetylcholine yeah. um so i guess you don't know what's happening to the endothelium but yeah it's amazing that um 56 days they didn't get worse in regards to insulin stimulated glucose uptake 
Now, the other thing I noticed was um, just looking at the paper with the arm. I know it wasn't significant, but if anything, it looked like the the glucose uptake might be might have been higher in the non-immobilized arm, but it wasn't yeah. significant. And I was almost wondering it might be because they compensate, right? You got to use your arm. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So it's almost like a a, a positive control, almost. You know yeah. that that arm went up and that one that went down. It wasn't significant. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not a sig in in the two studies we published. It's not a significant. Um, increase in the, what we call the control non-immobilized arm um but uh, but you you know you're right of course if someone we immobilize the arm and then we also put them in a sling so the only arm they have to do things is, is exactly the other arm so yeah, exactly uh, so you can't use your other arm either <laughs> we, we can't tell them not to use that arm otherwise no, i thought that was quite interesting because if, if anything you'd sort of predict that because it's always showing you that you know what i mean that the the one they're using became more insensitive, which is what you'd predict. Um, what was the thing I, I guess was thinking? What, you uh, know, I, 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 the biological mechanisms are are uh, as I've said are unclear. What is clear is that being inactive is is not without consequence. You know, people think, oh, I've got to exercise. Um, to stimulate adaptation um positive adaptation which is true but if you do nothing you will stimulate negative adaptation and people don't really think about yeah, they don't it that think way. through that you're right um I, I guess that got got me thinking about the participants it must have been hard to get these participants especially the ones that lay in bed for 56 days did you try and get people that weren't active to start with? Because I guess if they were already active, you'd expect them to have a drop. No. Uh, so we were lucky. So um, we were able to access uh, the European uh, bed rest facility, uh, European Space Agency bed rest facility in Toulouse. So they have a facility to do chronic bed rest studies. Um, and uh, that's why we had a minus six degrees head down tilt because it it was funded by the European Space Agency <clears throat> as well as the BBSRC uh, here in the UK. Uh, so the participants are all recruited by uh, the facility in Toulouse. They tended to be young military males. Oh, okay, under orders. I don't know if they're under orders, but um, they, they certainly, you know, uh, were really good volunteers. They understood what was trying to be done. Uh, and they're, you know, they, they are well looked after. There's a team with them 24 hours a day. So um, I was, I was looking at that, just thinking I, I would go absolutely nuts. We've done some studies looking at shift work. And we'd have to have the participants and they could only go out these particular times. And they'd go, oh, I want to go out now, now and whatever. And I think, wow, compared to you, so your guys were 6%. Now, is that 6% head? So the head is below the, yep. Yeah. So 6%. They weren't allowed to sit up. And no. they, they for 56 days, so even going to the toilet, they had to yeah, stay in the in bed that. at 6%. I, I don't bed. know. It just sounds a bit, uh, do they get claustrophobic? Do they start going nuts? I don't know. No. I mean, there's, there's lots, you know, we weren't the only study. 
-hmm. Actually, they were in bed for 50, for 60 days. It's just our study had to end at 56. So it didn't influence the measures they wanted to uh. make it 60 days. So that it's a, you know, it's a huge task uh, yeah. with groups throughout Europe uh, involved in this one major project. Tell me, do you get, um, I've seen a few bits and pieces uh, recently about how exercise increases inflammation, which I don't know if you know about that. That just, to me, it sounds, maybe it's only high intensity. I was thinking, I'm assuming that you'd get inflammatory responses or whatever in a muscle that's sitting there doing nothing, or is that incorrect, do you know? Yeah, that's quite a good question. So there's a quite a bit of debate going on now about uh, inactivity and then also trauma and inflammation effect on muscle. Um, and people see uh, fairly low level changes in plasma or serum uh, inflammatory markers, which they say these individuals are in, in an inflamed state and this can drive uh, atrophy in, in immobilization. We don't see any inflammatory signatures when we measure gene expression in muscle when people are immobilized, even after 56 days, um, which contrasts the, the work we're currently doing, uh, where we're looking at patients who've had ankle fracture and are having surgical fixation. So there you get both a local muscle major inflammatory response in the calf as you'd expect and also quite a large systemic inflammatory response um, and you do you also see inflammatory signatures in the contralateral limb in these patients probably because the systemic response systemic. is so large mm. so there is no doubt at least in my mind that you know trauma surgery infection all negatively impact upon muscle I don't believe that is the case uh, for inactivity um, because we don't see it in the muscle. And even in the obese, uh, you know, we don't, you don't see sarcopenia in the obese. You, you actually see a greater absolute muscle mass in the obese. Because yes. um, they're carrying more weight around. Yeah. Uh -huh. The other thing I thought about, I did, we did a little bit of stuff. It wasn't mainly me. It was this guy, Edmund Levinger at um, Victoria University, looking at bone and insulin stimulated glucose uptake with osteocalcin, which is this sort of bone marker thing. Um, I, I, I couldn't help wondering because I, I saw some, some papers there looking at insulin stimulated glucose uptake into bone. So I wonder if it's probably small. I wonder if I'm not trying oh. to make your job harder. I'm just saying <laughs> it's, it's hard to work out what's going on. I guess I, uh, I, I, well, I've put my hands up. I didn't even know there was a measurable rate of glucose uptake in the bone. Um, so, I, you know, no, actually, comment. actually I'm realizing now, I'm realizing now it was actually ex that's what it was because we were interested in exercise and it was exercise increases glucose uptake into bone. So that okay. was a, a guy from Finland. How so. is glucose transported into bone? 
I don't know, but there's a whole bunch going on in there. You know, there's all the medullary area with the storage of fat. And there's, 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 I don't know the answer to that, to be honest, but um, there is a lot of stuff going on in bone. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in inactivity in bed rest. It's just I don't know anything about that. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I, was, I was thinking, actually, because when I was thinking about the models, because I, I was thinking about, you know, choosing different models that we sort of touched on. So, you know, you could do the, you know, you could get people that are not doing many steps or you get people that are doing, um, you know, uh, sitting and then exercising, then sitting the rest of the day or whatever. And then immobilization reminded me of something I saw, which is, which is really relevant to what you're saying about, you know, if people have broken their ankles or whatever, that, that with an activity, your VO2 max, for example, goes down, you know, across your age as you're aging. And then if you have, you'll see this like dip and then it doesn't get back and it just keeps, then it dips again, you know, and it doesn't get back to where it was. And that was when people were actually in hospital or, you know, broken a bone or something. So your, your model is relevant in that regard, of course, as well. Yeah, I mean, this is a big, um, you know, quite a common concept in aging research where you have these, what they call them, are lifelong episodic burdens, you know, whether it's, whether it's a acute illness in your embedded home, you know, as you're getting older or whether you're hospitalized, um, you have this uh, period where there's a rapid decline in physiological function, whether it's, you know, in insulin resistance development, whether it's muscle mass loss, whether it's hepatic lipid accumulation. So it, there's a rapid decline and it does not return once the person is, is either, you know, recovered from the illness or, uh, you know, is released from hospital. It does not return to the trajectory it was on prior to, to the uh, insult. And that, that's quite common. Um, and we're, we're trying at the moment to, to look at recovery from, from bed rest and trying to see, you know, exactly what does physical activity do after bed rest and how much do you need does it change um how quickly does it change um with that view in mind you know it, it clearly if it doesn't return to the trajectory before illness that's not good whether you're old or young but it could have greater consequences in an elderly person who's mm -hmm. already got a low muscle mass or who is already insulin resistance or already has fatty liver so um that's all the yeah, more it's, reason it's interesting it's all the more reason to try and you know encourage them to you know to, if you point out to people that you know your tra trajectory is going to be going down quicker you know it's all the more reason to try to motivate them to try yeah. and do some exercise to get back on that hopefully to get back on that well, i mean it's interesting yeah you know it's when you start thinking about it your head hurts so if you're training <laughs> let's say so training will increase your rate of muscle protein turnover. So if you then mobilize someone who's been training, let's say they become ill, then the rate of muscle mass loss may actually be quicker because they're dropping from a higher level. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you see the same thing in aging studies. So that you know, people talk about um, the percentage loss of muscle mass, let's say in bed rest, they talk about the percentage loss of muscle mass being greater in an older person. Um, but that's 
in you know in some studies it's quite clear that that's because they started off with a lower muscle mass to start with so when you express it as a percentage of that lower level of course the mass loss is greater um it's just if you look at absolute mass the loss is the is the same so um i guess what i'm saying is it, it even even the condition of someone prior to an insult could be important to what happens during the insult yeah, um, I was actually thinking... there's people working on this idea of prehabilitation things like this you know mm. if you, if you if someone is going to have elective surgery for example uh the idea is you can actually do something about it before the surgery by by exercising just like they've done for years and years with cardiac rehab you get them yeah. fit before you, you do it yeah so do you have a feel actually i was thinking that there with the the muscle mass with bed rest that's another reason why you'd expect the insulin sensitivity to go down more right the longer you're uh, at bed rest if you've got yeah, less muscle yeah but we normalize the data to mass Ah, I so, saw um, that. Saw that. But but you're right. You know, losing muscle in itself is not a good thing, irrespective of the effect of the bed rest. But, but you're right. Um, but the, oh, the data, the, yep. the data we have in the bed rest is normalized to lean mass. Yeah. So I know you said you've started looking at this, but do you ever feel, even from previous literature or whatever, uh, that people who have a mobilized bed rest or whatever? whether they do come back quickly like is it like you know you lose it you lose a certain percentage and then it takes you longer to get it back or about the same time or is it not really known yet no i think you you can get a return of function i'm not sure people have looked at you know finite end measurements like leg glucose uptake for example or uh muscle protein synthesis um and break down how quickly it is and does it relate to the dose of exercise i'm sure there will be a relationship um but again the this particularly the human studies haven't really been done yeah so, like so a that's a good area for physiologists to get into yeah. um definitely and potential students can contact you <laughs> <laughs> Well, if they're good, if they're good, they're yeah. good, right? Sure. Um, yeah, actually, I'm happy to talk to anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're talking to me, so you must be happy to talk to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so thinking about, uh, this is something I mentioned to you that, in the, we sent some notes before we, before we, you know, decided, before we came on. I mentioned this exercise resistance concept that um, Eddie Coyle came on the podcast a while back and said he finds that if, if people... Um, you know sit around all day and then they exercise they, they don't get much of an increase in fat oxidation the next day but he finds if they exercise then they can they can make that fat oxidation better the next day if you know what i mean so there's sort of this it's called this um exercise resistance and i thought of that a bit before when you said i think it was the one of the studies you were doing the mobilization then you got them to exercise but then their fat oxidation didn't go up as much or did i get that wrong is that is that potentially an exercise no. resistance concept no i mean you do see it it's not it's not so so you know there's if you're thinking about protein metabolism you have the concept of anabolic resistance so if if you are immobilized 
the stimulatory effect of protein ingestion or muscle contraction on the exercised induced increase in muscle protein synthesis is blunted. Um, mm. So yes, I, I, uh, I concur with Eddie that uh, exercise resistance or metabolic resistance to exercise develops if, if you're in, inactive. Um, what drives that? We have no idea. Yeah, so it could be fitting with what you're looking at. Yeah, it could be almost a something to add to your arsenal of uh, tests. I mean, what's really interesting, you know, if you look at, say, muscle protein synthesis um, in a mobilization, uh, whether it's single leg or step count or, you know, bed rest, um, you see muscle protein synthesis declines, but the the pathways regulating muscle protein synthesis during exercise are not markedly influenced so you know if you exercise the current idea is if you exercise you'll increase uh, signaling via the mTOR pathway so the phosphorylation of proteins in that cascade uh, which switches on muscle protein synthesis um, if you immobilize someone you don't see any detrimental effect on mTOR signaling proteins in terms of phosphorylation at least despite muscle protein synthesis going down so there's that's further evidence if you like that inactivity and exercise are, are different uh, mechanisms hmm. even that reminds me of muscle insulin stimulated glucose uptake as well because for a while there they couldn't find any difference if you in the exercise leg or the rested leg in insulin signaling yeah. um, but then in the end they found you know we found that there was this microvascular flow and, and if, if you looked at other signaling molecules you could see it so maybe it's, it's also flow. likely <laughs> mm -hmm. it's also likely that you know measuring the phosphorylation of a protein may not or is unlikely to reflect the rate of flux through that pathway and you know, so our, our techniques at the moment are not giving the the full picture. Exactly. And then you you would know about some of the you said Jan Wojciechowski and Eric Richter, you know, look at the yeah. phosphoproteomes. They look at all the phosphorylation sites in the muscle, and there's like thousands and thousands of them. And here we are just looking at one phosphorylation. So yeah, like you say, it's probably a bit more. So I think phosphorylation in tandem with flux is. A good thing you know a, a robust approach but there are not many people able to do that hey i was just while you were talking i couldn't help just looking i've got my notes here um i meant to mention this earlier but the incredible effects of inactivity um in terms of you know being a risk factor for death um so do you want to just flesh that out a little bit or is yeah, not not just the risk factor, the, the mate, the the largest risk factor. So, um, you know, there there are several uh, large scale epidemiological studies that are well controlled. Some even longitudinal, looking at the rate, the death rate or the mortality rate over time, um, that is related step count to um, all cause mortality rates and also step count to disease specific mortality rates then there's the data of Stephen Blair's where uh, 
he's measured cardiorespiratory fitness. So, so I, you know, that is probably as a surrogate of physical activity and, and mm-hmm. more accurate probably than, than step count. And what that work showed was that actually the, the, that low cardiorespiratory fitness uh, ha- was a greater risk factor for all-cause mortality in, you know, in 50,000 people he sampled, 50,000 people in which he measured cardiorespiratory fitness. So the risk factor of low cardiorespiratory fitness was greater than smoking, uh, obesity, high cholesterol, diabetes, and hypertension. So that that is phenomenal. That is phenomenal. Um, yeah, yeah. And and, and you had and the people generally don't. They don't. You know, they don't recognize this. Um, yeah, they sort of say, oh, I should be exercising. Well, yeah, so one of the ones you had at the start of one of your papers, you know, large scale, 3,700 men, 1,400 women, followed them for 16 years. There was 450 deaths, and uh, physical inactivity was the central driver of mortality. So that's amazing. Because even if you'd asked me that, I would have said, oh, well, cancer, I guess cancer, coronary heart disease at the moment, maybe oh, COVID, you know, yeah. but uh, physical inactivity, that's that amazing. I mean, we, so I think we all know a, that. There's, yeah. a, there's another reason why it's imperceptible. <laughs> People don't recognize it as a major driver. <laughs> when they do, they're the dead. Driver. <laughs> Holy mackerel. Okay. So we've got these. I asked people on Twitter um, if they've got any questions. So we've got a few here. Uh, we've got Pierre Paquet. Paquet. Uh, he sent through a few, a couple of them we've already touched on. Do you know there's a you probably haven't looked at this, but effective age on these sort of um factors? I, I guess you touched on a bit earlier with bed rest and older people, but do you think if you're yeah, mobilized, age, something, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. age is associated with greater uh insulin resistance, uh, sarcopenia, so the, the loss of muscle mass, uh, age related diseases. Um, so yes, that there is an effect of age. Why? What is driving this? You know, from a biological mechanisms perspective, focused on muscle is we don't really know yet. So we know, you know, there's a decline in muscle mass with age. Is this due to cellular senescence? Is it due to, um, you know, lifestyle factors like? Uh, positive energy balance, inactivity or or decreasing levels of physical activity. Uh, we haven't teased that apart yet. I mean, I think it. I think a lot of it. T- well, a lot of these things where you look at bone mass or you know um, muscle mass or whatever. Often it's 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 if people are just inactive, right? They become more uh, less active as they age, and. Um, you know, that's that's the thing. You know, you talk about your models of you can control everything really well. That's the problem, isn't it? Because as people are getting older, they tend to get less active. They tend to get um, a high percentage of body fat, etc. So, sure, but uh, there's also the way data is being presented, as I mentioned earlier. You know, if you if you present muscle mass loss as a percentage of uh, pre bed rest, for example then if the older person already has a lower mass, exactly. then it, it's going to skew the data. Um, 
So some people argue, you know, making someone inactive accelerates the rate of muscle mass loss if you're elderly. That's one perspective. The other perspective is elderly people behave the same. It's just that their initial levels are, are lower. Exactly. And sometimes some, some people argue that the rate of loss of mass is less in the elderly. And that may be the case if their initial muscle mass is very low. You know, so if you have someone who's frail, for example, very low muscle mass, uh, putting them in bed may not have a major effect on their muscle mass because they're already wasted. Oh, yeah, I was so wondering. Yeah. Um, yeah. And sometimes, unfortunately, I think people present the data in the way that supports their uh, yeah. <laughs> argument. Um, actually, it, it, I thought when you were talking earlier, I wonder if you know how you said with bed rest or mobilization, you get a reduction in insulin sensitivity and then it just plateaus out. I wonder if that's sort of like the that gets to sort of like the basal level of insulin stimulated glucose uptake that the muscle sort of needs and it doesn't sort of have anywhere yeah, good, else to good go. Good question. We're trying mm -hmm. to tease that out now by uh, having comparing trauma and inflammation plus a mobilization post surgery with just a mobilization um, because uh. the the insult is far greater, obviously, with trauma um, than just with the mobilization. So mm. if, if, if it bottoms out, if muscle protein synthesis bottoms out in the way that you're suggesting, then it shouldn't go any further uh, if you have an increased level of uh, physiological insult. And unless I guess it's the cytokines, I guess unless it's the cytokines or something that are making, because is it correct that inf infection, inflammation, whatever that reduces insulin sensitivity on its own, doesn't it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, huh. right, another one. Uh, what have we got here? Oh, yeah, I don't know if you know. There's always this question. I ask it sometimes myself. Uh, can you outrun a bad diet? So, can a good diet outrun lack of exercise? So, I guess what he's saying here. This is um. Ooh, this is a, uh, Alex. He's got this long French sort of name, but it's in brackets, Alex. Uh, if you have no choice between eating crap and exercise or eating healthy and being inactive, which op option would you choose? It's, it's funny. <laughs> a bit of but it's, it's got to be exercise. Yes. I mean, it, 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 if you don't exercise, um, what you're eating will will not really have a major impact upon uh, the endpoint measurements or relative to the effect of exercise, you know. So definitely exercise. I tend to agree, but the dietitians won't like us, in that, including my wife. <laughs> well, Although I'm, not, I'm she, not saying yeah. there's no effect of diet. Mm. Far from, I'm saying, if, answering the question, if you had a choice, yes. which would you do? Exercise. I agree. I actually, actually have to ask my wife. I, think, I don't know if you met Kathy, but she's got a master's in exercise physiology and a master's in nutrition and dietetics. So she's unbiased. Uh, I think she would probably go with exercise as well, but I have to ask her. Um, all right, Chris Donnelly. Uh, any link between the discussion and the interpretation of studies using rodents in a cage or cells in a dish? Um, I guess we touched on rodents a little bit, but, um, you know, 
you actually responded, but did you want to flesh it out here? You said it's a big leap between rodents and humans and et cetera. And cell culture, yeah. I guess. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, if you, the rodent isn't a human. <laughs> I know that sounds obvious, but um, mm -hmm. there's so many dif differences, particularly when you're looking at inactivity. So, you know, the, the, the protein turnover rate of rodent muscle is, is about sevenfold greater than mm -hmm. humans. We know that uh, their rates of carbohydrate oxidation are much higher, both due to their high metabolic rates. We know that the interventions uh, to induce wasting in rodents tend to be more severe than, than you get in humans. So, so, you know, putting a rodent in a cast uh, produces a, a more dramatic response than a human because clearly the rodent doesn't understand. Exactly. Um, so they get a stress happens. response. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, and but, but that, that's not saying, how, 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 that's not saying um, rodent studies are not important. I, I would say that um, basically the, the if you can show the effects in a human and, and study metabolism in a human, great, but then that will lead you probably eventually to either rodent or cell-based studies where you try to manipulate your target, um, you know, which you can clearly do, bet do better in uh, rodents and cells. So, for example, in the recent bed rest study, we, we've postulated that the increase in free calcium as a result of the immobilization or the as a result of the bed rest is having metabolic effects so then you could move that into a cell line study where you you alter calcium um and look at the metabolic effects of that so um exactly. i guess you use the animal models and the cell-based studies to to uh take your understanding from the human studies further Exactly right. Yeah. So we, we did the same stuff. You do as much as you can in humans. If you, if you find an enzyme you think is important, you can knock it out in a mouse. You can't really do that in humans. Although there are, there are some, uh, you know, naturally occurring knockouts in humans, but that's a bit harder, harder to find. Um, all right. I think that's about it. Actually, one guy here, I'm not sure if you, Remzi asked, can exercise <laughs> snacks combat the negative effects of inactivity? How much and how intense? I guess that gets us back to the whole thing about what is inactivity. Um, yeah, there's some great ep epidemiological research in this, looking at associations in, in huge numbers of people, you know, tens of thousands of people. And um, there's, a, there's a really nice study showing, you know, there's a dose-response relationship in terms of intensity. The more intense the exercise, the greater the protection. But you you cannot eradicate the risk of inactivity completely by exercise. And, and what they show actually is quite nice that um, even in people exercising intensely, there's a negative effect of sitting watching TV that cannot be removed. So um, wow. the risk. So, so it's, um, it's, it's obviously associative and you can't, you know, imply cause and effect. Um, but it gives us things, you know, people like yourself and myself who, who are interested in 
physiological mechanisms. It gives us direction where to take research for sure. Actually, before we came on, you told me you rode to work today at minus three Celsius, um, but then you're going to sit around all day and then ride back. So yeah. is that is that are you protected or not? And then sit down again <laughs> and watch TV, watch which is a, <laughs> which is a risk factor. There you go. Sure. Now, I thought we'll probably finish up pretty soon, but I was wondering if you could flesh out a bit. You said something about you've been looking at the brain or or you've been. Yeah, um, um, we've started um, doing. So, so so that, you know, my career has been focused almost exclusively on muscle and the effects of exercise and inactivity on muscle or nutrition. Um, but what's clear is exercise hits multiple organs. Um, so we're now moving out. Nottingham's re really well placed for MR um, work, you know, that Sir Peter Mansfield got the Nobel Prize for, for inventing MR. Um, so we have- So we just say you're talking about magnetic resonance. So yeah. Just to yeah. clarify to people what you're talking Magnetic about. resonance, spectroscopy yeah. and imaging. So yeah. um, we're now trying to look at organ-specific effects of inactivity and exercise um and you know there's really again nice relationships so there's a there's there's almost a linear relationship between brain gray matter volume and vo2 max oh. uh, which is you know probably ref probably reflecting physical activity uh levels um and we we've done that what what got me into this is we had a we were doing a an a study of elderly volunteers where we, where we were principally looking at muscle but um we decided to increase the the scope of the measurements so we 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 did brain measurements and um my colleague sue francis who's professor of mr here she she uh said oh wow look at this guy he's got a young brain that's mm -hmm. what she actually said to wow. me and i said what do you mean a young brain <laughs> And, mm. she, and then she showed me, you know, the anatomical structures. And um, sure enough, he was 75 year old, but highly trained. Wow. So we're now doing studies where we've looked, we're comparing lifelong exercises. So people who've done 100 kilometers a week for most of their adult life versus young volunteers and versus sedentary older people to try and tease apart the lifelong effects of exercise at a multi-organ level and that's, that's again pretty exciting it might and be it, that the it come, it, go back to when i first came on it comes down to being in the, the right place around good people that's you and, know a lot of researchers look and keeping your eyes open you know looking looking out for potential collaborators it might yeah. be the other way around it might be that these people with big brains are smart enough to exercise so that's the correlation because <laughs> they're smart so they exercise so their vo2 max goes hand in hand with it that's great um the other thing is I, i've seen bits and pieces i don't know but lately i've seen a, a bit that you know doing sudoku and all these things that are meant to be keeping your brain active is is actually been not as promising as initially thinking so um they're probably better off exercising for all the other reasons as well exactly yeah i mean exercise hits multiple organs for sure and uh that's really a field that's wide open for for you know you and i were getting to the end of our careers mm. 
but for younger people coming into the field, I think being a human physiologist is a it's really opportune time because you know funding bodies are realizing you know animal research hasn't delivered in the way that we'd hoped and people are now recognizing exercise is indeed hitting multiple organs so um it, it's a really good time to get in into exactly. human physiology and, and exercise physiology not necessarily re related to sport uh because you know there's not many people that fund sport research but certainly linked to health Absolutely. and uh and aging really it's a so goal not this has been great because remember like 20 years ago or probably longer again it was the whoever was the head of the american physiological society it might have been frank or something wrote an article saying you know because everyone is just everything's going to be molecular biology and they're saying we still need physiologists to actually work out what's going on even if you knock out these genes and whatever but as you're saying yeah. maybe it's going full circle now you know you realize yeah that, i mean my my own my personal opinion and i'm sure that people will disagree with me but you know uh the best biomarkers are only as good as the physiological endpoints that are used to validate those biomarkers. Mm -hmm. And the better we get at implementing, you know, detailed, dynamic, physiological measurements uh, in human volunteers, the better uh, biomarker approaches will be and the better research discovery will be. That makes sense. So, so physiology needs to be at the center. And in terms of, I think this is a something that's come out in lots of podcasts is how how exercise is affecting different organs. So, you know, I had John Tifo on talking about the liver. You yeah. know, we've talked about all sorts of things. And and I've actually tried to get Mark Tarnopolsky and I've asked Mark Fabreo to um, come out because, you know, these exocrines that are and exosomes that, you know, are getting released from the muscle and traveling all over the body. So it's really, it's, it's really like, as you say, it's a massive area to try and look at this. And it's, it's integrative physiology at, at its best. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, and, and it's really good for young people coming through. You know, everyone, certainly in the UK, times are tough in terms of the economy and research funding. But that this is really, I think, something to get excited about. And, um, you know, hof hopefully young people will, you know, training in human integrative physiology will increase. Exactly. Uh, that's important. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Now, what I might just do before we finish up is um, just if you can tell us a few sort of takeaway messages. So if you wanted people to have a, a two or three things they they take away with them from this chat. Okay. So, uh, well, f firstly, I think um, inactivity in itself is a physiological stressor. So it will, you know, exercise will produce positive effects doing nothing will produce negative effects. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that, uh, you know, these effects are very rapid within activity. So within 24 hours of being inactive, you will see, or immobilized, you'll see impaired glucose disposal and muscle protein synthesis declining. Uh, and the third take home message is epidemiology is you know, provided a lot of robust associations between physical activity and health and, uh, and mortality rates, but the biological mechanisms 
that are driving these associations are not yet clear. And this is therefore a really good time for exercise physiologists and uh, metabolic physiologists to get involved. Totally agree. Now, one thing I've realized I've not brought up because we've had so many people come on and talk about um, diabetes and things. Is we, I guess we haven't really said why is it important, that, that, you know, if you have a lower insulin sensitivity, you know, did you want to just flesh that out a little bit just to finish up? Something we should have said at the start. Probably. Yeah. Well, it, it, insulin resistance is, is associated with negative metabolic effects that actually, you know, progress and become even, even more uh, pathophysiological as time passes on. So, you know, you have uh, dysfun endothelial dysfunction, you have cardiovascular dis cardiac dysfunction, you have uh, usually uh, in tandem accumulation of lipid within muscle. And uh, that's both, you know, between muscles and within the muscle fibers themselves, all of which uh, alter physiological function and actually probably accelerate the rate of further metabolic decline or further insulin resistance developing. And you can, can end up with, you know, pre-diabetes and then diabetes and then yeah. everything that goes with yeah. that as well. Yeah, All right. Sure. Well, thank it's, you very it's, much. It's a, it's a gradual decay from, from a uh, healthy state into a uh, pathological state, you know, and they, they go hand in hand with multi other multi other diseases, multimorbidity, you know, so the common drivers of, multimorbidity which is the occurrence of of uh one or more chronic diseases are sedentary behavior excess energy balance uh age so everything we've been talking about mm -hmm. and even insulin resistance increases increases your chance of cancer as well so yeah, yeah, yeah. so that's very important and as you said at the start and we'll finish again it is in in perceived which is a word I actually, to be honest, had to yeah. Google. <laughs> it makes sense. It's the opposite of perceiving it, but yeah. um, it wasn't one I was familiar with. So it sneaks up on us. All right. Well, thank yeah, you. It's, it's silent. It's silent. Silent. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, thanks again, Paul, for coming on. Okay. I hope glad. you don't get too cold riding home later yeah. on. Okay. Yeah. It looks nice and sunny where you are. <laughs> it was 37 <laughs> today, which the Americans will think, oh, that's freezing. But 37 Celsius is 38 is 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, good on you, mate. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Glenn. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, please like, subscribe, pass it on to your friends and colleagues. Check out the other podcasts. Thanks again.